Welcome back, Stew Heads. I'm Leah. And I'm Steve. Today's episode is Yo-Ho-Ho. It's all about sailors, their superstitions, lore, and strange things about the briny sea. Shove off. If you have an appetite for intriguing and bizarre true stories, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for a curious helping of remnant stew. So do you have any sea stories? uh, I have uh, not really been out to sea very often, but uh, many years ago, I happened to be on a, a ship that was, it was kind of a ferry passenger ship going across from Sweden to Finland, across the Baltic Sea. Um, and I was uh, uh, on that particular ship on the way from Sweden to Finland going east. Very calm, beautiful, peaceful, blue skies, really nice. On the way back across later that same day, it was very stormy. And the first time I'd ever been on a um, really stormy um, experience on an ocean uh, liner and um, you can understand why people would get seasick because it does toss you quite a bit Uh, you find yourself trying to hold on to poles or tables or whatever that's attached to the floor to keep from uh, getting thrown around so I can understand how it could be pretty frightening to be in a storm at sea well I I've never been in a boat on the sea but I've always been fascinated, absolutely fascinated right. by sailing and, and pirate lore and sailors uh, lore. And today's episode's called Yo-Ho-Ho. And, of course, if you know the song, and a bottle of rum. Right. Do you know why rum is connected to sailors? Mm, I would imagine they drink quite a bit of it, but I don't know all the details. Well, they're known to qu- drink quite a bit, which leads to stories and <laughs> lore and superstition. But sailors were given, as part of their payment, they were given a daily ration of rum from 1655 up until about as recently as 1970. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was given because, uh, well, they started out giving them rations of beer, and then when the beer ran out, they would give them rum because water goes rancid very quickly. You see if it's not... Safer to drink. Yeah, if it's not really pure at first... Uh, but they did use it to use the water to to water down rum. But that was the way that they got their uh, their hydrations, right. right? And so working all day in the sun, I can't imagine. Mm-hmm. But often they would water down the rum and then put lemon in it, right, to stave off scurvy, because sailors a lot of the times because they didn't get the vegetables, the vegetables didn't keep as long on the ship. They they would eat mostly just meat and so they would get scurvy and so mm-hmm. citrus was a way to to stave that off i think lemon, uh, lime as well right lime in, orange anything citrus i think the british are still nicknamed as limeys limey that's right that. that's right sailors have a lot of nicknames that's right old tars scurvy dogs some we won't say here <laughs> that's <laughs> right well, being a sailor was and is a very dangerous job. If you've ever seen re- the reality shows Deadliest Catch, uh, which is Alaskan crab fishing or Wicked Tuna, right. um, so they're at the they're at the absolute mercy of the weather and sea, which have claimed so many lives. So it's no wonder that as a group, sailors have a lot of superstitions and a lot of stories that uh, of things that they've seen that other people have not seen. Correct. Um, and their lore and superstitions was just a way, I think, for them to garner, garner some kind of control I see. of yeah. their surroundings. Or at least perceived control, huh? And, <laughs> and the sea is so vast. I wanted to bring this up. This isn't really related to sailing, but it is related to the, the ocean. Point Nemo is the farthest you can get from land. It lies in the South Pacific Ocean, and when a ship passes through this point, it is 1,670 miles from the nearest That's land. That's a long way. That is a long, long way. And some of you will recognize the name as a hat tip to Captain Nemo in Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Or Finding Nemo. Or Finding Nemo. That's right. <laughs> it depends on your generation, I guess. Nemo is Latin for no one. Oh, that's interesting. No one. That so makes point, sense. point Nemo is so remote that at certain times of the day, the nearest humans 
are actually on the International Sp- <laughs> Space Station that's orbiting overhead. Flying overhead. That's right. <laughs> they pass within 258 miles above Point Nemo. And it's also known as a spacecraft cemetery because hundreds of de- decommissioned satellites, space stations, and other spacecraft have been programmed to crash down there upon reentry uh, just to, to lessen the risk of hitting inhabited locations or maritime traffic. Uh, that's, a, that's smart thinking. But uh, but talking about weather and all of the, because sailors were so much at the mercy of the weather. Right. Uh, so you have some, some things for us, some weather phenomenon. Right. Um, first of all, we have St. Elmo's fire. Now this is an interesting phenomenon. Um, it's also an interesting song from back in the day too, but uh, <laughs> St. Elmo's fire is a rare weather phenomenon typically occurring during a thunderstorm when a sharp object such as a ship's mast comes in contact with an extra, uh, extraordinarily high electrical field and a large number of electrons. The electrons can glow in various colors like a neon sign resulting in a glow discharge. Um, You've seen it before, it's how fluorescent lights work, but only there's no fluorescent light or electricity. It just glows primarily on the ship's mast, although I've actually heard of it happening uh, on land, uh, on chimneys and and various uh, church steeples that would stick high up into the air as well. But it's not uncommon to see it uh, in the ocean. St. Elmo's Fire is named after St. Erasmus of Formia. Formia is in Italy. Beautiful town. I actually was at Formia about uh, three years ago. Uh, One of the two Italian names for St. Erasmus, the other being St. Erasmo, the patron saint of sailors. It's right on the uh, west coast of Italy, in fact, a little bit to the south of Rome, between Rome and Naples. The phenomenon sometimes uh, appeared on ships at sea during thunderstorms, and was regarded by sailors with religious awe for its glowing ball of light, accounting for the name. Sailors considered St. Elmo's Elmo's fire as a good omen, or as a sign of the presence of their patron saint being with them through troubling lightning storms. I can imagine. I mean, being on a ship in a storm and then seeing something like that, you're either going to be really afraid or take it as a good sign. Well, most sailors took it as a good sign that their uh, their patron saint was with them, that that he was there helping them out. So they took courage from seeing the St. Elmo's fire. St. Elmo's fire may possibly be related to the phenomenon known as ball lightning. Uh, That's this phenomenon that I've been fascinated with for forever. No one really knows, though, if they're related because neither one are fully understood. But one main difference is that St. Elmo's fire is always attached to objects, such as a mast of a ship or steeples or whatever, whereas ball lightning is generally free-flowing, say that (laughs) three times fast, free-flowing, going wherever it may, and sometimes even turning corners and seeming to be sentient. I've heard of it going down chimneys even before ball lightning. That's right. But that's a discussion for another episode. So interesting about St. Elmo's fire, everything you wanted to know but were afraid to ask. (laughs) Now, another one that's really interesting um, that was especially important to sailors is called a green flash. I've heard of that one. And we actually have a picture of of this on our website. Uh, If you go to the beach and you're looking at either the sunrise or the sunset, you want to look closely just as the sun is barely above the horizon and see if you might see the green flash. Now, you know what? I have never heard of it happening at sunrise. I always thought it was a sunset thing. I mean, it makes sense. Right. (laughs) Okay. The green flash is an optical phenomenon that you can see shortly after sunset or before sunrise. It happens when the sun is almost entirely below the horizon with the barest edge of the sun, the upper edge still visible. For just a second or two, that upper rim of the sun will appear green in color. It'll just be like a green flash. It's a brief flash of the color green, the legendary green flash. It's really quite exciting to see, especially if you are looking for one. Now, what causes it? Well, if, you, um, will look th- if you're looking through the atmosphere straight up, you don't get a lot of interference from uh, ground pollution, clutter, dust, and so forth. But if you're looking level with the horizon, you're looking through a lot Right. of uh, the atmosphere and uh, things that would be in the air, uh, suspended particles in the air. 
and it's those suspended particles that can give the sun this odd-looking green flash just at the very moment of sunrise or sunset. So um, it's said that once you've seen a green flash, you'll never again go wrong in matters of the heart. Well, I don't know what one has to do with the other, but sailors uh, took all the chances uh, with matters of the heart that they could, I suppose, or took all the courage with matters of the heart that they could. <laughs> well, we we talked about Jules Verne. Uh, you can't separate him in the sea. Right. Uh, he wrote about that. He wrote about the, the green flash. He said, It will be green, but a most wonderful green, a green which no artist ever could obtain on his palette, a green which neither the varied tints of vegetation nor the shades of the most limpid sea could ever produce the like. It is there, no, if there be green in paradise, it cannot be but of this shade, which most certainly or most surely is the true green of hope. Must be an awfully beautiful green. I have not ever seen this. Have you seen it? I, no, I haven't, and I would love to. I'm going to have to start looking forward to it. Um, Sailors considered seeing the green flash to signify good health and prosperity on their travels. So it was really a good omen to them if they saw this green flash at sunrise. Well, now another thing that uh, you might not have heard of that occurs at sea is called a rogue wave. Yes, that's a wave that's gone bad. Well, no, not exactly. (laughs) Uh, But many things that were originally disregarded by scientists Uh, as just legend or uh, tall tales from sailors have actually more recently turned out to be scientifically proven as to be true. Right. One of those is the existence of rogue waves. These rogue are freak waves. Oh, that's even worse to be called a freak wave than a rogue (laughs) wave, I think. (laughs) Now we're calling names. Right. Heard of freak accidents, but freak waves have been known for centuries by mariners to pop out of seemingly nowhere to overturn a ship and drown many a sailor. In fact, we have a picture on our website of uh, one that was taken uh, on September 9, 2009 of a rogue wave estimated at 18.3 meters or about 60 feet high. And this was in the Gulf Stream just off the coast of Charleston, South Carolina. At the time, surface winds were light at 15 knots. The wave was moving away from the ship after crashing into it moments before the photo was captured. Rogues, called extreme storm waves by scientists, are those waves which are greater than twice the size of surrounding waves. You've got your waves that are your normal size, everyday run-of-the-mill waves, and then you have the rogue waves that are at least twice as tall, maybe even taller than that. They're very unpredictable, and they often come unexpectedly from directions other than prevailing wind and waves. Most reports of extreme storm waves say that they look like walls of water. They are often steep-sided with unusually deep troughs. Since these waves are uncommon, measurement and analysis of this phenomenon is extremely rare. You can't really predict where a road wave is going to occur, so it's hard to analyze it. It just appears. Exactly how and when rogue waves form is still under investigation, but there are a couple of known causes. One is called constructive interference. Extreme waves often form because swells, while traveling across the ocean, do so at different speeds and direction. As these swells pass through one another, their crests, troughs, and their length sometimes coincide to reinforce each other. It's like a bunch of of waves piling up on one another. This process can form unusually large towering waves that quickly disappear. If the swells are traveling in the same direction, these mountainous waves may last for several minutes before subsiding. Now another one, uh, another cause, may be something called focus of wave energy. You must focus, Grasshopper. You remember that from the old uh, (laughs) TV show? Well, the waves evidently must focus as well. When waves formed by a storm develop in a water uh, current against the normal wave direction, an interaction can take place and which results in the shortening of the wave frequency. This can cause the water to dynamically join together, forming very big rogue waves. The current where these are sometimes seen are in the Gulf Stream in the Atlantic Ocean, coming from the Gulf of Mexico across, and the Agavis Current, which is in the Indian Ocean. Extreme waves develop in this fashion tend to be longer-lived. So there you go about rogue waves whenever you're out to sea. You want to keep an extra eye out, even if everything's calm, are the rogue waves. 
Well, I've heard I've heard about rogue waves, and I heard that the reason that they're so dangerous is because all of this volume of water comes together, and it's Im- sometimes it's impossible to see it until some formation on the ocean floor right. causes it to to rise up, bump up, and so uh, and so all of a sudden you could be facing a thirty foot uh, high wall of water capable It'd be pretty of, terrifying to see it all of a sudden out of nowhere absolutely and so sailors have been talking about seeing this and battling these and talking about these and, and scientists didn't yeah, uh, didn't take it didn't seriously it, for a long time for until, a long time until they were able to see it right. and the concept of sailors having seen things that were not taken seriously by sailors uh is all across the board because okay sailors are blue collar right hard-working Hard drinking men with right. lots of stories, so I do tend to tell get lots it. of stories, right? Uh, but I wanted to just bring up, and I know that we're in weather, but this isn't weather. This uh, the giant squid was one of those things, right? Yeah, that was talked about, and there was a lot of lore surrounding it. It probably was the origin of the kraken, the, okay. the lore of the kraken, right? That this giant squid, right? And uh, and for it's only been accepted by scientists for the last 150 years or so. Um, it wasn't until 1847 a Danish scientist was able to obtain the remains of a giant squid that the scientific community accepted the possibility of it. And now we know that there's a colossal squid, right? one even bigger. So who knows what's down there? There's so They're much. They're still going- finding things that they've not ever seen before. Isn't absolutely. Absolutely. We know more about the moon than we know about yeah, what's under, under absolutely, the waves. Uh, absolutely true. More about the moon than about the ocean, I think. Okay, right. so back to, to weather phenomenon. Well, the next one is really interesting. It it's, is. it's called fog tsunami. Now, you know, Leo, fog can be really, um, it can really play havoc with you. The worst experience I ever had with fog many years ago, well, about eight years ago, um, I used to live in Seattle, Seattle, Washington. So what a beautiful city that is. And uh, I actually have um, kids still living there. And so my wife and I were flying to Seattle um, on a commercial airliner. And if you're familiar with Seattle, you come over the Cascade Mountains, and then uh, down below you usually see clouds because the clouds kind of stop at the mountains. So the plane usually goes through the clouds, and you're waiting to get through the clouds, and then you can see the city down below and kind of get your bearings because it's laid out in, in such a way that it's really easy to tell where you are, as you can see the landmarks there. So on this particular night, this was in January, about uh, 2014, I guess, uh, we flew in to Seattle. It was a moon, full moon, and so you could see the mountains. You could see the clouds down below. So we came through the clouds, and we're still coming through the clouds, and we're still coming through the clouds, and it's seeming like it's taken an awfully long time to get through the clouds. I'm looking out the windows, waiting to break through and see the city down below, and all of a sudden I see runway lights. We're landing, (laughs) (laughs) and when the plane finally comes to a stop, the pilot comes on and says, it's a good thing we had navigation systems because we couldn't see a thing up here. Well, that's nice to hear from your pilot. Well, at least, yeah, at least you (laughs) heard it after you landed safely. (laughs) But then we got our rental car and uh, drove to where our, uh, our daughter lives, and it was up in the hills, and it was so foggy you couldn't read street signs. I've never been in that kind of fog before. Uh, well, well, I live on a lake, and so right. I have to go across that mile-long bridge oh, to get yeah. home. And when it's foggy, there's a point at which you get in the middle of the bridge, and you don't see the water. Can't see the end. You of can't it, see right? the end of either end of the bridge. Right. And it seems like, even though you're in a car and you're going, you know, 40, 50 miles an hour, it seems like you're standing still. I, Absolutely. So <laughs> being in the middle of the ocean on a ship in the middle of fog would be. Absolutely disconcerting. Very disorienting, I, I think. But uh, regular fog is bad enough sometimes, but have you ever heard of the fog tsunami? No, yeah, no. That's, that's something to really uh, get your attention. In fact, we have a picture of a fog tsunami on our website. You can take a look at that. Uh, first glance, this jarring sight looks like a giant tsunami rolling in from the ocean, but it's actually a massive amount of fog. When conditions are just right in late spring or early summer, the condensation from warm air merging with the cool ocean water can create this dramatic effect. So rather than fog coming in on little cat's feet, as in the children's uh, poem uh, from many years ago, the fog tsunami can come in uh, a large amount of fog at one time and catch people off guard. So something to watch for in coastal areas. And the the picture is really 
really interesting blue sky above and then it does it looks like a tsunami wave coming right. in now while we're talking about tsunamis there's another kind uh, called a, me- a meteor tsunami a meteor tsunami that has nothing to do with fog but they have characteristics similar to earthquake generated tsunamis but they are caused by air pressure disturbances often associated with fast-moving weather systems such as squall lines These disturbances can generate waves in the ocean that travel at the same speed as the overhead weather system. Development of a medial tsunami depends on several factors, such as the intensity, direction, and speed of the air pressure as it travels over a water body. Like an earthquake-generated tsunami, a medial tsunami affects the entire water column, and it may become dangerous when it hits a shallow water area, which causes it to slow down and increase in height and also in intensity. Semi-enclosed water bodies like harbors, inlets, and bays can uh, greatly intensify a meteor tsunami. That is what that picture is. That's right. We do have a picture of that meteor tsunami, uh, the squall line, and so it's it's a weather phenomenon that can cause a tsunami. Most people, you relate tsunamis to the earthquake under the ocean, but they can actually be caused by a a squall system, a squall line moving along the ocean. Now, I've heard this word many times. Uh, It's kind of an ancient word. Uh, Moving on to our next thing, we're still in yo-ho-ho. The the phenomenon known as a maelstrom, M-A-E-L-S-T-R-O-M. I think that it appears in quite a bit of ancient writings, including the Old Testament. A maelstrom is a strong whirlpool that forms when opposing currents meet to form swirling water. Name comes from the Dutch words malen, to whirl or to grind, and stream. So a maelstrom can be a dangerous, uh, very dangerous, due to powerful currents that occur below the surface, which can pull surrounding objects into its vortex. That's right. There's many stories of ships being sucked down by a maelstrom to the bottom of the sea. And growing up, I really thought that was going to be a much bigger problem to face than it really has turned out to be. I've never <laughs> seen one. But uh, most of, they're, they're usually found not in the open ocean, but in the straits and passageways along uh, trade routes right? Uh, because of the way the water and the land currents interact. Uh, but they were often thought to be formed by the sea goddess Calypso. Oh, I Calypso. Okay. That's right. Gordon Lightfoot, correct? <laughs> I don't know. That's I don't know. I don't I know about that. I think you sing that song, Calypso. Anyway, let's move along. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Water spout coming up next. A water spout is a spinning column of air and a mist that forms on lakes, rivers, and at sea. Water spouts fall into two categories, fair weather and tornadic. Tornadic water spouts or tornadoes that form over water are moved from land to water. They're associated with severe thunderstorms and are often accompanied by high winds and seas, large hail, and dangerous lightning. The tornadic variety are more dangerous than fair weather water spouts, which generally are not associated with thunderstorms and usually form along the dark, flat base of a line of developing cumulus clouds. While tornadic water spouts develop downward in a thunderstorm, a fair weather water spout develops on the surface of the water and works its way upward. Fair weather water spouts form in light wind conditions, and so they normally move very little. They could probably be more surprising, though, because if it's thunderstorming, uh, you would kind of be thinking, oh, there might be a, a chance of a tornado. You hear about the tornado warnings, whereas the fair weather one, that would sort of catch you off guard, I would think. That Okay, so I've seen those. I've seen the fair weather right. ones. But I, they develop on the surface of the water. That's that's interesting. Right. For sure. That is very interesting. I'd, I'd like to see how that happens. Um, Another water spout was when I almost made uh, Leah uh, spit the water out of her bottle a minute ago and she laughed. <laughs> but that's a whole different water that's spout. That's a whole different story. <laughs> oh, now you've got an interesting story here, Leah. I do. Um, I think this is pronounced noscopy. Noscopy. Right. In in 1718, okay, so noscopy is a, a little-known word. It is a science. It? It's a science. It's N-A-U-S-C-O-P-Y. Noscopy. Noscopy. Okay, so in 1780 in the Indian Ocean island of Mauritius, uh, in, off of East Africa, there lived a Frenchman named Etienne 
Botano, who had quite a remarkable skill. Botano had the uncanny ability to foresee the arrival of ships that were anywhere from 350 to 700 miles offshore. He was able to announce the imminent approach of ships days before anyone else was able to see anything. Wait, this was before radar, before any other kind of um, manual or electronic means of detecting movement of ships. He was able to. He was able to tell when ships were going to come into the harbor. Absolutely, and see, and I think what they had was, uh, I think he could see them even before the lighthouse keepers could see it. Right. Uh, he he could see them way before anyone else, even those that were, that was their job to be out there and, and spotting ships. Bono insisted his predictions were not due to sorcery or good luck. He claimed to have invented a whole new science that he called noscopy the art of discovering ships and land at great distance. And he wanted to make money at this. Right. Uh, there's no doubt that the Frenchman was at the very least able to confound many of most senior officers stationed on Mar- Is it Mar- Mauritius? Mauritius, yeah. Mauritius. Okay, Mauritius, yeah. I am pronouncing it right. With the accuracy of his predictions. We have written history about it. Right. Colonel Trabond, the officer in charge of the island's infantry detachment, signed an affidavit confirming that Monsieur uh, Botano has, at different periods, announced to him the arrival of more than a hundred vessels hmm. two, three, or even four days before the coast signals. Wow. Adding that, uh, moreover, he stated that there was only one, or when there were several, so he knew how many ships, how many were coming, and and how far out they were. That's right. And in some some. Uh, Sources say that sometimes he could even see what the ships were, like what kind they were mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, if they were trade ships or or Navy ships. Um, let's see, where am I? Like by Botanou's reckoning, he announced the arrival of 575 vessels between 1778 and 1782, many of them four days before they became visible to anyone else. That's pretty amazing. Unfortunately, he was never able to profit from his study, with the exception of winning a lot of bar bets. I bet he did. <laughs> In the mid-1880s. You would, think the, you would think the sailors would get wise to him after a while. You know, would, Don't bet yeah. with him. He knows what he's doing. But uh, in the mid-1880s, he traveled to Paris to attempt to explain his new science to naval officials. However, the French Revolution was just getting underway, and the lack of stability in the government didn't allow for his yeah. ideas to gain any further traction. And later his, his, so he died. He died without passing that on to anyone else. Right. Uh, And so Noscopy died with him. Later his ideas were discovered by the British, but they were never able to replicate his science. I wonder if he was uh, detecting changes in the water or the natural environment of the harbor there in Mauritius as the ships were approaching. Um, Maybe he must have spent a lot of time studying it or looking you know, at 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 the uh, at the natural world there, and how it would change if shifts were approaching. I wonder if there were any writings of his anywhere around that we could we could see or yeah, or the, try. bound to be but. somewhere. I would think that there are. Well, that's very interesting about noscopy. Now, I've always heard this term. You're going to tell us about Davy Jones' locker. That's right, Davy Jones' locker. Now, if you watch Pirates of the Caribbean, you know who mm-hmm. Davy Jones is. I've heard it on SpongeBob, but you know, with my grandson. <laughs> I am not a fan of SpongeBob. Oh, I love SpongeBob. He, he, it's a funny cartoon, but he's irritating as all get out. <laughs> my kids know if he starts laughing, they better turn down the TV. <laughs> um, the phrase "Davy Jones's locker" is an idiom that refers to the seabed, the resting place of thousands of sailors drowned at sea. Sailors use the phrase to denote the afterlife of seafarers or even objects, including ships, that destined to rest on the bottom of the ocean. Nevertheless, the phrase, in its euphemistic sense, has been part of the English language for a long, long time. The origin of the word remains disputed. The first reference to Davy Jones's locker dates back to the 18th century. And, and let me just say that uh, sailors had lockers. Right. They had lockers, not like high school lockers, but like they foot had lockers. Yeah, yeah, foot locker. Right. Uh, so that they could keep their 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 items. treasure. Yeah, their treasure. Their booty. <laughs> their, their no, their own clothes and their their items, their things, uh, separate from everyone else's and and private. Uh, and so Davy Jones. No one exactly knows who Dave, Davy Jones is. Who Davy Jones is, mm-hmm. but supposedly it was a sailor at some point. Um, 
So the first reference to Davy Jones's locker dates back to the 18th century, during which it was popularized as a nautical superstition among sailors and pirates. Uh-huh. In earlier times, the name Davy Jones was referred to as the sailor's devil, and sometimes the evil god of the seas. Now, can you imagine if it if it originated with an actual sailor? How right. horrible he yeah. must have <laughs> been to that to live on in infamy. However, unsuccessful in tracing the origin of the term, historians argue that its root goes back centuries ago and the stories were transferred to generations by word of mouth. Though the origin of the name or phrase remains unclear, there have been a number of attempts to explain the truth behind it in the past. The prominent among these tales, those appeared in movies and writings, is the story of Jones as the captain of a mysterious ghost ship, the Flying oh, Dutchman. Oh, yeah, the Flying Dutchman. I've That's heard of right. that. right. The Flying Dutchman is a mainstay of maritime lore, is a legendary ghost ship that is doomed to sail the oceans forever since it can't make t- make port due to the rough waters. Oh, so Davy Jones was the captain, and so that's where the term comes from. So you'd be, you'll, be, you'll be staying in Davy Jones' locker if you... Go down, uh, go down to the bottom of the ocean, I suppose, then, right? That's right. Well, now you mentioned that that's a superstition. And, uh, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, sailors had a lot of superstitions. And uh, some of them you may have heard of. Some of them you may not have heard of. And uh, this is a, a list that comes to us from a website called boaterexam.com. Kind of interesting. Um, first of all, I bet you didn't know that it's a superstition among sailors not to have bananas on board. No it, bananas on board. Yeah. It, what about banana boats? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I suppose you know they, one of them crashed recently, I think, didn't it? Anyway, aside from their peels causing uh, many com- uh, comedians to trip and fall down, bananas have long been thought to bring bad luck, especially on ships. At the height of the trading empire between Spain and the Caribbean in the 1700s, most cases of disappearing ships Happened to be carrying a cargo of bananas at the time. There it is. There you That's go. it. They are. Don't take They're bananas, you'll disappear. Coincidence, perhaps? Another theory suggests that because bananas spoiled so quickly, transporters had to get to their destination much quicker. Fishermen thus never caught anything while bananas were on board. Another danger caused by the monkey by the monkey's favorite fruit uh, fermenting so quickly was that in the heat of the storage hull, bananas would produce deadly toxic fumes. And probably fruit flies, too. Oh, wow. No, wait, 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 wait. No (laughs) fruit flies. Not out in the middle of the ocean, anyway. Well, if they were on the bananas already, they might have uh, have hitched a ride. True. (laughs) Stowaways, as they would say. A final theory on the perils of bananas at sea, though, there are tons, is that uh, the species of a deadly spider would hide inside banana bunches. Their lethal bite caused crewmen to die suddenly, heightening the fear that banana cargo was a bad omen. Many boaters continue to avoid bananas at sea, some even avoiding banana-smelling suntan <laughs> lotion. <laughs> right. <clears throat> I would, I would, um, I would be uh, wanting some banana pudding myself, but anyway, that's uh, one of my favorites. Well, anyway, the next one, number two. No women on board. Sorry, Leah, you got to stay at, uh, on the shore. I'm good with it. Okay. I'm good with it. Uh, according to ancient sailors, women were said to bring bad luck on board because they distracted the sailors from their sea duties. This kind of behavior angered the uh, the intemperate seas that would take their revenge out on the ship. Funny enough, naked women on board were completely welcome. That's because uh, naked women calmed down the sea, <laughs> evidently. In fact, many ships typically had a figure of a topless woman perched on the bow of the ship. Her bare breasts shamed the stormy seas into calm, and her open eyes guided the seamen to safety. So I'm I'm thinking they just came up with that reason just to have that on the really? ship. Really, we need but, a naked woman on board to keep us safe. Yeah, that's right, yeah. that's yeah. right. But you know, it's it's interesting that they named their ships after women. Right, the ship was always a woman, and referred that, to them as her. Uh, and yeah. you know, in storms mm-hmm. and calypso, and there's a lot of lore surrounding women. Exactly. Now, another one, uh, you may have heard of the phrase, son of a gun. That was a milder phrase than what uh, I was not allowed to say when I was a kid. But anyway, uh, son of a gun. Well, male children that were born on a ship were referred to as a son of a gun because the most convenient place to give birth on deck, that way, I mean, uh, if you were happened to be a woman that was able to get on the ship in the first place, um, was on the gun deck. 
that was a level spot. It was safe. There was room there. And so often women uh, had birth to their sons on the gun deck, making them sons of guns or son of a gun. Okay? I had never heard that one. Having a male child on board was a sign of good luck, by the way. Well, here's one I like. No whistling on board. Mariners have long held the belief that whistling or singing into the wind will whistle up a storm. So you could get keel hauled for whistling on board. We don't want that to happen. Now, I have heard this one. Uh, it's a kind of a little uh, weather forecast, but it actually does have some uh, realm in reality. Red sky at night. Right. I've heard um, that one. Yeah, we've already talked about weather and the consuming effect it had on sailors who were at its mercy. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. It's probably the best known weather prediction rhyme and has some basis in fact. The saying originated in England where weather conditions come from the ocean to the west. If the air is clean, uh, rather, if the air is clear, sunset will be tinted red. In the morning, red light will be reflected by clouds to the west, which means moisture in the air and possible, possible storms. storms. Yeah. yeah. So. Now, what about deathly Lexus? you got to be careful what you say. Always be careful what you say, but especially when you're at sea because some words may be strictly avoided to ensure that the ship and crew safe return. These include obvious ones like drowned and goodbye. You don't say those things at sea. If someone says good luck to you, it is sure to bring about bad luck. The only way to reverse the curse is by drawing blood. So usually a good punch in the nose will do. So if, if you say good <laughs> luck to a sailor and he punches you in the nose, now you understand why. Wow. Beware wow. of the lurking shark. This is another one. Now that, that sounds more like common sense. Well, that would make sense. You know how uh, a shark... Uh, following the ship is a sign of inevitable death. Absolutely. So if you got a shark on your path, um, it's not a good sign. However, dolphins, on the other hand, dolphins swimming with the ship are seen as a good sign. Good luck to have those dolphins around, not so much the sharks. Now, sailors had, uh, they, were, they were real specific about what days they would and would not set out on a journey. Another, for example, uh, they would not start their uh, sea voyage on a Thursday, on a Friday, or on the first Monday in April, or the second Monday in <laughs> August. Okay? <laughs> they now, why so would random. that? Well, some, some ideas, nobody knows for sure, but some ideas, Fridays have long been considered an unlucky day, right. likely because of, of Jesus uh, being crucified on uh, Friday, on Good Friday. Thursdays are bad sailing days because that is Thor's Day, the god of thunder and storms. Get it? Thor's Day? Thursday? Right. Okay. Is that really where the etymology of that word comes from? You know, I the think day? it is, but That's I don't know neat. for sure. I, I should have looked that up. The first Monday in April uh, is the day that Cain slew April. Because they had they had that, that kind calendar of calendar back, back then, back then. right? <laughs> really sure where they came up with that, but the uh, first Monday legend, in April. That's when the Sunday first mur murder happened. Yeah, that's right. Cain, okay. Cain slew Abel back on the first. So that's a bad day to sail. You don't want to do that. The second Monday in August uh, is the day that the kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Now again, okay. we went on to if they had the, the calendar up and accurate at the time. Superstitious sailors believe that only good days to sail are Sundays. They really like to set a sail on a voyage on Sunday. There you go. Now, you've seen uh, in the movies the way that pirates are dressed, but uh, that actually is not too far from the reality, uh, particularly in the pierced earrings. Uh, a pierced earlobe on a sailor meant that he had sailed around the world or that he had crossed the equator. Superstitious sailors wore gold hoop earrings because they believed it brought good fortune. Some believe that the gold possessed magic healing powers or that it served as a protective talisman that would prevent the wearer from drowning. Tattoos were also seen as lucky. Seafarers would usually tattoo a nautical star on their bodies as the North Star represented a signal that they were nearing home. Maybe it would help them with navigation as well. Now, cutting one's hair or trimming your nails, or even beard shaving were seen as big no-nos. A lot of sailors would braid their hair in one long tail, then dip it in tar or pitch. They would use the seal, uh, use the, uh, I'm sorry. A lot of sailors would braid their hair in one long tail, then dip it 
in the tar or the pitch they used to seal seams on the ship. That way, it was not a burden to have to keep clean or would uh, be a haven for bugs. That's why they earned the name Jack Tars. That's right. I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard of sailors referred to as Tars. I also heard that, that, and I don't know how true this is, but the the earring, the gold earring, was also a way to pay for their funerals. Okay, so if they if they died at sea, then uh, rather than being dumped overboard, they might uh, uh, be able to fund the uh, sending of their body back to their to their well, home. Well, I don't know about that, but if they didn't die at sea, if they died near land or whatever, okay, they they could pay for their yeah. their funeral that way. I'm not sure. Yeah, that, that would. I'm make not sense. sure how accurate that is. Oh uh, well, I let's just say that, that it is. <laughs> there you go. That's that's how a lot of facts get. This is our podcast. We'll say it as we <laughs> want to. That's right. That's that's what you do. Don't change the name of a boat, Leah. Uh, If you ever have a boat, you want to keep the name that it has. It's bad luck to change the name on a boat. Boats develop a life and mind of their own once they are named and christened. If you do rename the boat, you absolutely must have a renaming, or rather a denaming ceremony, and then I suppose a renaming ceremony. This ceremony can be performed by writing the current, uh, current boat name on a piece of paper, folding the paper and placing it in a wooden box, then burning the box. Afterwards, scoop up the ashes and throw them into the sea. The ships were often named with feminine names, as we said, and the sailors would attribute human qualities to her, such as strength or fickleness. Those ships were seen as a person or personality that could take offense if their name was changed. It made sense to keep her content and keep her happy, so keep her name the way it is. They'll be going, <laughs> calling her a different name. Oh, here's a good one. If you don't want to bring bad luck on yourself and on the voyage, pay your taxes. A seaman that hadn't paid their debts were blamed for storms and any other misfortunate event that would occur on their ship. Yeah, and I put down, yeah, I think that goes back to the story of Jonah. Oh, probably so, yeah. Right. He was, he was running away from uh, from an obligation, wasn't he? Right, that's <laughs> right. And I don't know necessarily that it has to do with taxes. I think it has more to do with, like, bets. Or any kind of debts. Anything yeah. that they have to, yeah, that they owe, especially to the each other. You owe money and you run off from it. That's well, right. that's going to cause the ship to have problems. Okay. Well, what about redheads? Are they good to have on oh, board? Oh, they get such a bad rap. Yeah. <laughs> redheads were thought to bring bad luck to a ship if you happen to encounter one before boarding. However, if you speak to the redhead before they get the chance to speak to you, you're saved. Now, you can imagine a redhead could cause havoc going down to the port and just going up and talking to sailors before they can talk to them. Um, that would certainly be a good way to kill a Saturday afternoon, I suppose. And, and I would like to know, what about redheaded sailors? I don't know. Redheaded sailors might have to, well, if they, maybe if they dip their hair in that tar. That's right, they, right, they, right. They would hide their red hair for a while. Uh, in order not to kill our luck with this post, by having 13, we've, they've added one more superstition. Number 14, don't kill an albatross. Seabirds were thought to carry the soul of the dead sailors, and it's considered bad luck to kill one. However, it is considered good luck if you see one. Right. So if the, you see an albatross, good luck. If you kill an albatross, not so good. And and I think the birds were indicators that there was land nearby. Right. Because, the, you know, obviously you wouldn't come across them in the, in the middle, middle of the ocean, of, yeah, right. in the deep ocean. Uh, the Rime of the Ancient Mariner, that, that's what that makes me think of. Uh, the whole story is right. about a sailor that, well, and I want to say it was, a ca- it was the captain, that right. uh, there was an albatross and it was, it was guiding the ship, flying ahead of the ship, right. and all of the sailors... Uh, loved it and uh, and looked for it every day, every morning, and the captain got jealous. Oh, yeah, that's right. And so he shot it and killed it. And uh, and so their ship just had... It did. In, in, the, in the book, it just gave him absolute bad luck, and he ended up having floundered. to wear it around his neck, wear the dead albatross around his neck. So that's where that saying comes from, an albatross, an albatross around, around your neck. neck. That's Very right. Very interesting. Okay, so I know you added one more superstition. Oh, you've got another one. I have one more. So we have, what, that's 15. So so absolutely not. I think 15 is a great number for for sailor superstitions, don't you? That's right. Well, this superstition also comes with a story. So cats. Cats are very uh, much associated with superstition and lore. 
And many if, ships. If you own a cat, you understand why. That's you know, right. I own that's two right. Of them. <laughs> many ships had a resident cat or cats on board, and they greatly helped in keeping the rodent population down right. with the disease and with along with the diseases that the rodents carried. So cats have been considered to be mysterious creatures by many cultures and, and people, including us today that have cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, sailors were no exception. Many believed that cats could protect ships from dangerous weather. Another popular belief was that cats could start storms through magic stored in their tails. Ooh. <laughs> so when they're flicking their tail at you, a, right. a storm is brewing. Well, I can understand that. If a cat, if a ship's cat fell or was thrown overboard, it was thought that it could summon a terrible storm to sink the ship, and that if the ship was able to survive, it would be cursed with nine years of bad luck. Oh, wow. Other beliefs included if a cat licked its fur against the grain, it meant a hailstorm was coming. <laughs> if it sneezed, it meant rain. And if it was frisky, it meant wind. Some hmm. of these beliefs, as, as crazy as they sound, are rooted in reality. Cats are able to detect small changes in the weather as a result of their very sensitive inner ears, right. which also allow them to land upright when falling. So low atmospheric pressure is a common uh, precursor of stormy weather, and it often makes cats nervous and restless. Cats naturally react to barometric pressure changes, so somebody that was a keen observer would be able to uh, detect the unusual behavior and predict an incoming storm. Watch your cat. Predict the weather. So the tradition that every ship needs a mascot made cats very welcome among sailors. So there's a whole list of notable seafaring cats, but I'm going to tell you about Unsinkable Sam otherwise known as Oscar. Oscar the cat. Oscar the cat. This black and white cat was brought on board the World War II German battleship Bismarck by an unnamed crewman. The Bismarck set sail in May of 1941, but was sunk after a fierce sea battle on the 27th of May, from which only 115 from her crew of over 2,100 survived. Hours later, the cat was found floating on a board and picked up from the water, by the British destroyer HMS Cossack. Unaware of what his name had been on Bismarck, the crew of the Cossack named their new mascot Oscar. Oscar. So Oscar spent the next few months sailing in the Mediterranean Sea and Atlantic as the HMS Cossack ship carried out convoy escort duties. On October 24th, Cossack uh, was escorting, escorting, not escorting, escorting <laughs> convoy from Gibraltar to Great Britain where she sustained serious damage by a German torpedo. So there was an wow. attempt to tow her to land, but she sank. And Oscar the cat survived this sinking too and was brought on land. Now, nicknamed Unsinkable Sam, the cat was soon transferred to the aircraft carrier HMS Ark Royal, which coincidentally had been an instrumental in the destruction of the Bismarck along with Cossack. <laughs> Comes full circle, it seems. (laughs) That's right. However, Sam was was to find no more luck there, and when returning from Malta on uh, November 14, 1941, this ship, too, was torpedoed, this time by by U-81, a submarine. Mm -hmm. Attempts were also made to tow Ark Royal to Gibraltar, but the unstoppable inflow of water made the task futile. The carrier rolled over and sank 30 miles from Gibraltar. The slow rate at which the ship sank meant that all but one of the crew could be saved. The survivors, including Sam, mm-hmm. who had been found clinging to a floating plank by a motor launch. Uh, he knew how to survive these that, shipwrecks, didn't he? He knew where I to mean, go. You, and described as angry but quite unharmed. Can you? I would be yeah. angry, too. Right. Uh, they were, he was transferred, along with the other survivors, to HMS Lightning. And the same HMS Legion that had rescued the, the crew of Cossack. Legion would itself be sunk in 1942 <laughs> and lightning in 1943. Wow. The loss of Ark Royal proved the end of, ships, of, of Sam's ship-borne career. He was transferred first to the offices of the governor of Gibraltar and then sent back to the United Kingdom where he saw out, uh, lived out the remainder of the war living in a seaman's home in Belfast called the Home of Sailors or the home for sailors. Okay. So Sam died in 1955. A pastel portrait of Sam titled Oscar, the Bismarck's cat. So uh, he had many names. By the Oscar by the artist Georgina Shaw Baker mm-hmm. is in possession of the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. So you would think that he would put up a fit being taken on board right. a ship. Right. I'm tired of being on <laughs> ships. They always sink. It's a terrible way to travel. 
<laughs> but he survived three sinking ships. No matter how nice the Mediterranean is. So well, was he good luck or was he bad luck? Well, it seemed like uh, he for him he was good luck. but uh, And for most of them around it, it seemed like most of the ones that he was on, except for that first one, uh, most of the sailors survived as well. So that's really, really fascinating. So it's time for our trivia challenge today. A seafarer's life was hard work, but there was a lot of downtime, too, resulting in many beautiful arts and crafts made by sailors. You've probably seen some sailor artwork and crafts. Their knowledge of intricate knot work, K-N-O-T-W-O-R-K, helped spread the popularity of macrame. I remember macrame from back in the 70s. I yeah, oh, yeah, you'd have planters and chairs and things hanging from the ceiling. It was a trendy home decor back in the 70s, and I uh, hear it's making a comeback. That's right. I never knew it went away. <laughs> this particular marine craft, however, cannot make a comeback since creating it is now strictly prohibited by law. What is this beautiful craft? Let us know by liking and following our Facebook page at Remnant Stew Podcast, liking and share this podcast episode, Put your, own, uh, put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post. The first person to do all that will be the winner and will be mentioned in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. That's right. Good luck. Remnant Stew is created by me, Leah Lamp. The esteemed Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode. Esteemed, wow. Esteemed. Audio is produced by the swashbuckling Philip Sinkfeld. Well, I believe that. <laughs> he does his best to make good us job, sound Phil. good. That's right. Thank you. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. You can connect with us through our Facebook and Instagram. If you have an idea you would like to hear us cover in a future episode, you can email suggestions to us at staycurious at remnantstew.com. Before you go, please hit the subscribe button so you won't miss any new stew. Maybe take the time to give us a review on iTunes. Oh, we love your nice reviews. Remnant Stew is free to download and free to listen to, but it is not free to produce. Giving us a review helps us out by making the show visible to potential sponsors. Also remember to share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, local ship captains, dog groomers, and park rangers, and anybody else you might come in contact with. And until the next time, as you sail the seas of life, remember, please choose to be kind and, and always, always stay, stay curious. curious.